0: invite you to take your copy of god's word and turn to ephesians 6 beginning in verse 10 as we look through verse 20 this morning together and again paul is concluding his letter now this was a letter that i do believe was circulated in ephesus but also a letter that would be circulated among other churches and he's addressed all types of subjects But as I said, one of the things you take away from Ephesians, I hope you take away from Ephesians, is that Christ is everything. That Christ is your salvation. That it is by grace that you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not any type of works that you've done. It is because of Christ Jesus and his work, his complete work for you, that you can have salvation. And when you have salvation, that means that Christ also is involved in your service and who you are from day to day. That Christ, he consumes, he immerses every aspect of your life. That as we've looked at the last few weeks, that he is the one that informs our marriage. And he gives us an example of what marriage should look like. We've seen that uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. We see what it looks like for us to be the parents and the children that we should be in the first part of chapter 6. And then last week, we focused upon how Christ is our work. So we've looked at all these things. We've heard Paul say to us that Christ is everything. So here he comes to complete his letter, to finish it up. It's kind of like he's putting the final touches on his sermon, on his message. He even begins verse 10 saying, finally. So he's saying, this is it. So what does he want to leave us with? Well, I believe after addressing all these different subjects and perhaps knowing that the congregation could be a little bit overwhelmed, especially when they think about family and they think about work and they think about their daily lives. I mean, you can get overwhelmed, right? I mean, I'm going to be honest. Like some of these messages that I've been preaching, they have been personally convicting to me. There have been some of those messages that I've looked at and said, okay, God, how in the world are we going to be like that? How in the world can I live like that? How in the world can I have family like that? How in the world can I have a marriage like that? How in the world can I see work in this way? So some of the folks there I think were overwhelmed, just like some of you may have been. So what does Paul do? Paul says, even if you're overwhelmed... Even as you're going through these different aspects of life, just know this. Christ is your victory. This is how you win. This is how you are able to achieve those things I've written to you. Christ is your victory. Look in verse 10. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God This church, in his final words, and he says to them that they need to be engaged. They need to know that they have victory, even in the warfare, the spiritual warfare that is going on around them. Now, I know that such talk can make Baptists very nervous. What do you mean? Well, I know when we talk about spiritual warfare, when I was younger, it would make those of us, especially those of us who are younger, it would make us nervous when the preacher started talking about uh, demonic influences and spiritual beings and spiritual warfare and all those kinds of things and make a little bit of folks nervous. Well, it may make you nervous, but you need to hear this. Because you need to understand that there is a spiritual battle going on daily in this world. There is a cosmic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. There is a battle going on between God himself and those who would oppose him. That battle is going on. It is raging all around us. Now, I will tell you as I was reading through this scripture in verse 12, it says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When I, when I read through that and I see the word wrestle, it, it kind of, well, for me on this side of, uh, well, this, this side of my experience and to think about wrestling itself, it, it doesn't seem like it's that serious. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I grew up, I hate to admit this to you. I guess I can. I grew up a fan of wrestling. I love to watch wrestling. I did. Now, I grew up in the Tupelo, Mississippi area, and we were influenced by Memphis, Tennessee quite often. On Saturday morning, when I would go into my living room, there would be cartoons that would be playing a lot of time until it was time for the wrestling to begin. In Memphis, Tennessee, they had had folks like Jerry the King Lawler. Superstar, Bill Dundee, Jeff Jarrett. I would get up on Saturday mornings, and after I spent my time with the Smurfs, I would turn over and I would watch <laughs> Bill Dundee, Jerry the King Lala, all these different ones. I'd watch them, man, I'd get so excited about it. I mean, I'd, you watched them put people in hell. I mean, it was awesome. And then finally, I graduated. I actually moved up to some other folks. I moved up to, uh, to a guy named Hulk Hogan, uh, I moved up to, to a guy, Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, and then the Nature Boy. Some of you remember that? Woo! You remember those? Those are the things I remember. Well so when I came look, I was studying this studying this and I was thinking this gotta be serious. And I gotta look I got to talking about wrestling and I saw that I was like, man, wrestling's not that bad. I mean I mean it was pretty good for me when I was younger until my dad broke the news to me. You know. He told me one day, he said, son, now some of the Memphis bunch had been over to South Hill High School, and they had wrestled at the gym, and people had shown up for that, and things going on. And son, son you you know that's not real. I said, Daddy, what are you? Ta-? Yes, it's real. Son, it's not it's not real. They're drums under the they 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 kind of making that sound underneath. I said, Daddy, did you see him hit that guy with that chair? I mean, he was about, Daddy. He said, it, it, it's not real, Reggie, I hate to tell you. And I cried for about three or four weeks or so. And, <laughs> but, you know, I got to think, I mean, I liked wrestling when I was younger. I would see those kinds of things and see it. And, and then my daddy told me it wasn't real, and that was really bothersome to me. And so, you know, I think about it, And long, you know, wrestling. And when I think about wrestling and these kinds of images, it's not the best image. But when Paul talks about wrestling, he's not talking about fake stuff. He's not talking about entertainment value. Oh, there's some, listen, there are some today who think this is fake stuff. And there are some today who try to dismiss it as simply like an entertaining kind of thought But I want you to hear when Paul talks about wrestling, he is talking about a struggle. He is talking about something that is real. Actually, the word means hand-to-hand combat that you're involved in. He says, I want you to know that you are struggling. You are combating hand-to-hand. It kind of goes back... It, it kind of goes back to the thought of the gladiator in the Colosseum who is battling hand to it, hand. It is the idea of, of the gladiator who will fight back and forth. And he says, I want you to know that we do not wrestle. We do not come into combat hand to hand with, well, with flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He says we are wrestling, we are struggling, we are combating spiritual forces that are coming against us. Hey, may we stop just a moment and just recognize that? There are warring factions all around us. Can you recognize the warring factions we see in our culture and that we see in our nation today? And I'm going to be honest with you. I think sometimes we forget who the enemy is. Sometimes we have reduced this to a political warfare. When I'm going to be honest with you, we need to be more concerned about the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. We need to recognize that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. We are not wrestling against each other in humanity. What we are wrestling against is the spiritual power that is pushing up against us, that is blinding people, that is somehow trying to consume the truth. Look, look, look what he says again. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Back in verse 11, it says, to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So what Paul says is that you've got the devil, and, and this is a true personal being. He is not some just imagined kind of thought that we've come up in our churches. He is a personal being, the devil. Hebrew, they called him Satan. He was the adversary. That's what that word means. In the New Testament, as you hear this word devil, it means the diabolical one, the accuser or the slanderer, the one who is accusing the saints, the one who is slandering the people of God. He is the one that is our adversary. But it says here that there are demonic influences, that he is the prince of the air, but there are demonic influences. In verse 12, I think Paul is trying to ride to us and, and, and just try to tell us there is a system that is set against us. I know some people have tried to identify the hierarchy of the demonic beings, and they've tried to do it here. I've tried to understand that their are principalities and there's power, that all of these are, are some type collection of a great hierarchy of demons. And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with some of that. I'm going to say to you, we don't have enough information in this book or even in these verses to try to put all that together. But what Paul is saying to us is, understand there is a strong kingdom that is coming against us. The devil, the accuser, and all of his demonic influences, they're coming against us. Yet there are some who dismiss it still. Let me tell you that for those who are in Ephesus... They believed in demonic influences. They believed in the devil. You ask. You ask the sons of Siva. You say, who? Acts chapter 20. The seven sons of Siva. They began to try to cast out demons in Jesus name they see the disciples and the disciples are casting out demons so the sons of Siva the sons of the Jewish chief priest they said let us try it too so they start using the name of Jesus and what happens in Acts chapter 20 verses 11 and following there what happens well the demon speaks out of the man and he says Jesus I know Paul I know but who are you I don't know you, and you can read it a little bit, but those seven sons, they were in store for a great whooping. Yes, they were. You ought to read it and see the way they fled. The people of Ephesus understood it. As a matter of fact, there were those who even involved themselves in the occult, and demonic influences. If you look at the history of Ephesus, during this time there were many who, under, who believed and recognized that there was something that was pushing against them. And let me say to you today that Satan is so subtle, and there are times when it may be very difficult for you to recognize the work and the power of demonic forces, but I want you to know that they are still pushing back against the kingdom of God. As someone said, it's not really God's, or let me say, it's not really Satan's intent for you to recognize him. Satan's intent is for you to destroy him, whether you or destroy you, whether you recognize him or not. That's what he wants to do. But think about it. One author, one commentator said, when you think about Satan, he is the one that... He is the one who is appearing in the movies telling us that romantic love and sexual pleasure are the keys to fulfillment. He's the one behind an economic system that teaches us that money is the key to success and happiness. He's the one who sits in the psychologist chair offering ultimate hope in life apart from God. He works in and through governments that coddle people into thinking that government help is the answer. He's the one teaching from our pulpits that life is about you, that God wants to make you rich, that hell is not real, and that the standards of the Bible are for a different time and a different place. There are demonic forces around us. And notice what it says again in verse 11. It says that we need to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Wiles. The Greek word there is uh, methodios. You can hear the English term we get, methods. So in other words, Satan is coming up with methods and schemes and strategies to try to lure you into his area of influence. And he is a strategizer. He is somebody that can come up with schemes, right? Now, I do not believe that the devil is all-knowing. There is only one all knowing being in this universe and that is the God I serve. But he does take note of our lives. He and his demonic influences, they watch us. They know our weaknesses. And you know what they do? They come up, I believe, with customized plans and strategies and schemes to come at us knowing that these areas will will tempt us in particular. While I have places of temptation in my life, they're probably not the same as yours. And yet Satan watches and he does what he can to come against us. But what are we to do? I love the way, the way Paul just puts it out there so practically. And let me give it to you very quickly. It says that first, the thing, first thing that we need to do as we recognize this spiritual warfare, the first thing is stand up. Stand up. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, verse 10 said. And again, you'll hear that word stand in verse 13. It says, having done all, stand. Verse 14, stand therefore. In other words, there are times you got to stand up. You can't just sit down in the battle. You got to stand up. You got to take your place. And you got to stand ready to go. Now, I know this will surprise you but I wasn't really an athlete growing up. I know after I was talking about wrestling and stuff a moment ago, you probably thought I would be, but I'm not. I'm, I am not i i was not an athlete, but I had friends that were athletes and they would talk to me about some of the things that would go on. And they told me about this drill they used to have. I don't know if they do it anymore. And they may, maybe a no, no to do it now. I'm not sure, but the drill that they would have in football, when I was in high school, the, the guys, sometimes they would put one person in the middle, and they would stand there, and they would uh, get ready to be hit, but they didn't know which guy was going to be chosen to hit them. Like, they would just, like, there, and the guy would come from what—he was in a circle, and somebody from the circle would come and, like, hit them, and you were supposed to be ready. You're supposed to be prepared. Again, this is one of the reasons I wasn't an athlete. But people would, they'd come and boom, boom, boom. you are supposed to like be prepared, be ready. You and I, when we stand, the way I read this scripture is that we need to be ready. You and I can be hit at any moment at any time. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think we ought to be pessimist. I don't think we ought to walk through life saying, oh, when's the next hit coming? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying to you that you should be so anchored in who Christ is that you are ready and prepared, even when it blindsides you, that you are able to stay and stand in him. He says, above all, no matter what kind of schemes, you are to stand. Now, you can't stand alone. You can't stand alone. What do he say here? Be strong in the Lord. That you are to be in the power of his might. When you think you're strong, that's probably the area Satan's going to attack because he's going to take your prideful attitude and he's going to use it for his advantage. But when you recognize that I'm standing and the only reason I'm standing is because of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, because I am strong in his might, I'm weak on my own but strong in him, you are prepared to face the things that are coming against you. You and I must be in Him. We must be strong in Him. It is His power. I love the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's the story of King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. As they're about to face an immense enemy. From Moab, from Ammon, from Mount Seir, they had gathered against the people of God. And there were multitudes of them. So many that everybody knew that there, were no, there would be no earthly or military way in which they could win. So what did Jehoshaphat do? He went to God. And he admitted his weakness. Go back and read it. I read it this week again. It just basically says, God, we know he can't do this. <laughs> there are too many of them. There's no way. But God, we trust you. I'm going to be honest. There's some days when Satan's going to attack your marriage and the devil and the demonic influence is going to attack your family. They're going to attack your work. They're going to attack everything about you. And you're going to be like, God, I just, I can't handle this. You know what? That's when God can show his strength and his might. If you will trust in him, because what does God say? God speaks. speaks. He speaks to Jehoshaphat and he says, The battle is not yours. It is mine. The battle is not yours. The battle is for the Lord to to complete on your behalf. You remember that God gives you the strength and he does give you the might. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul will write in in the same time frame as he writes to the Philippians. He'll say, I can do all things In James, James will say, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In other words, you'll have victory over the devil himself, but you've got to submit to God first. It's not you standing on your own. It's you're submitting to him. John will say to us, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. And even Jesus reminded us that the gates of Hades, the gates of hell itself would not prevail against his church. So I say to you as a church, as a people, we got to stand up. Not in our own might and not in our own, but in him. We need to stand in him. Second, we need to do this. We need to suit up. We need to stand up and then we need to suit up. We need to get up. We need to put our armor on. Isn't that what Paul says? We got to put the armor on. You're going into battle. Now, Paul was in Rome when he wrote this. He was under house arrest. And I believe he could see these Roman soldiers uh, walking around. As a matter of fact, Philippians chapter 1, verse 13 says he, he actually is able to minister to the palace guard, the praetorian guard. So he sees these soldiers that are going about their business. Oh, I think tomorrow is Veterans Day, is it not? As we're kind of getting into this, the idea of battle and soldiers, how grateful we are for those who have fought battles for us. That I'm even able to stand here in this pulpit and preach with such freedom this morning because God allowed you and worked in you to serve our country, and we're grateful. For you. Would, you, would you show appreciation to them this morning? Would you do that? And if you get a chance tomorrow to stop and to pray for them and to encourage them, even today, to encourage them. But Paul, he saw these Roman soldiers, and he saw them dressed in their armor. So what did he do? Well, he did like any good preacher. He took the illustration that he had right before him, and he used it in his message. So what does he say? He says, verse 13, or verse 11, he said, put on the whole armor of God, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. And the verbiage, take up, put on, it is in the original tense, which means that you are to do it with completeness. You're to make a decision about it. You got to decide you're going to put the armor on. You're not going to sit around and just drink your coffee, although coffee's good. You're going to get up. You're going to put the armor on. And it's not not present tense. It's not ongoing. It's kind of like you put it on and you leave it on. You need the armor all the time. And then he fleshes it out. He says in verse 13, he says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And then verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. So he's thinking about how that tunic would flow there on the Roman soldier, and what does he say? He says, "You need to tuck in. Your, you need to tuck in your tunic. You need to tuck it in. This is not untucked business. This is tucked business." What does it mean? Well, think about it. If the Roman soldier's out, and he's got this tunic on, and it's kind of flowing. And he's trying to go to battle. It, it could it could interfere. I mean, you could get it caught in something. He says, tuck it in. There would have been a belt that would have been used by the Roman soldier in which he would have tucked that tunic in the belt so that it wouldn't just flow or just drape. This terminology was used in the Old Testament during the Passover night. Remember what God said? to his people he said to them that they were to gird their loins or they were to basically tuck in their robes and they were to get ready why because they're about to go you got to be prepared you got to be how many of you I was going to say how many of you run a few of you I saw four in here I didn't raise my hand by the way but if you're going to run, how many of you want to wear something that's going to interfere? No, you want to tuck it in. You got to be prepared. You got to be ready. So they were ready to go. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus will even talk to them and he will tell them that they needed to gird up their loins. They needed to tuck it in. They were to tighten it up around their waist because he is coming back. In other words, you got to be prepared. So the idea is be prepared. Be ready. Be ready with what? He says, be ready with the truth. He says, verse 14, girded your waist with the truth. You got to be ready with the truth. You know how you're able to withstand? You are to know the truth. And there is truth, no matter what people try to tell you. Oh, well, it's true for you, but maybe not for me. You know, everybody's got to decide about their truth. No. That's what Satan and his demonic hordes are trying to teach our culture and share in our culture. But I tell you, there is a truth. There is one and only truth. His name is Jesus, and he tells us what is right and what is wrong. You got to know the truth, though, if you're going to be able to stand. Gird yourself. Tuck yourself. Prepare yourself with truth. He says... He says you're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. There was different forms. Most of us, if we've seen the movies, think about a metal type of breastplate that would have been molded for the soldier that they would be able to put on. Sometimes it would be leather that would be covered with uh, metal or so, but it would be a breastplate. And notice what happens. What happens with the breastplate? It protects your vital organs. You put the breastplate on, it's going to protect your heart, your lung, all of these vital organs so that you will not be penetrated. You will not hopefully be killed. He says, put righteousness there. Well, there's a a part of me that likes to say, okay, this is the imputed righteousness of Jesus. That, um, remember, you're not righteous on your own. It's certainly not self-righteousness. I want to say, oh, it's the Jesus righteousness that you put on because when you're saved, what happens? The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you. And when you stand before the Father, it is not in your righteousness, it is in the righteousness of Jesus. So I'd like to tell you that's exactly the way this is. I'm not convinced because these are believers already. What is he saying? I agree with those who would say he's saying the practical righteousness, holiness in our daily living. You need to put obedience on. You need to put holiness on. There's got to be a practical protection. The church today is often guilty of supplying believers with paper armor of good advice, programs, activities, techniques, methods. When what they need is godly armor of holy living. No program, method, or technique can bring wholeness and happiness to the believer who is unwilling to confront and forsake sin in his or her life. It is the breastplate of obedience and righteousness. Shoes, your feet, he says, verse 15, having shod your feet with preparation of the gospel peace. Your feet. You realize how we've got to have special shoes for everything these days? Everything. Basketball, baseball, soccer, cross country. You're running on your own. you got to have a special shoe. But think of the military. Think of those in the day of the New Testament, the Roman soldier who would go across hot roads, who would go across uh, rocks and all kinds of things, how they could receive cuts They could receive damage. They could even have infection in their foot. They had to make sure that they were taking care of the proper attire as they marched forth. And it says here that you're to put on the gospel of peace. Well, the gospel, the idea that how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings, certainly that Paul would talk about in the Romans, but peace. Peace. I thought we were talking about warring, yet he talks about peace. Peace comes through Christ Jesus. It is confidence and assurance that you have that when you walk and when you step, you walk in confidence. You put on those shoes of assurance and confidence. The shield of faith, taking the shield of faith, there were a couple of shields that Romans would use, but this one, the word particular that he uses here, talks about the larger shield. It would have been a shield that was about two and a half feet wide. It would have been about four and a half feet tall. Four and a half would cover most of your body, at least those of us who are normally sized. (laughs) By the way, when I was in Rome a few months ago, I heard something that said that Caesar Augustus was like 5'9". Do you realize I could have ruled the world if I lived back then? (laughs) We were normally sized. I don't know what's happened to all of these hormones and y'all getting six foot. Anyway, y'all weird. But it 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 was a shield that would cover. It would be a shield that would basically cover. And what they would do is they would soak the shield, which sometimes was made out of the wood interior, metal on the outside even. uh, They would soak it before they went into battle. Why? Because the enemy would often take these fiery darts. They would take these arrows, and they would they would soak them in something flammable. They would light them on fire, and then they would shoot them. But the shield, which had been soaked in water, and the shield, which would be used to protect, that shield would sometimes even extinguish the fire. Oh, yeah, and you've seen... The way the Romans would fight in a flanks type of uh, methodology where they would be side by side and the shields would interlock almost. Well, that says a lot about how we as a church of Jesus Christ ought to stand side by side with our shields locked together as Satan comes to fire the fiery darts at us. He says, use the shield, the shield of faith, Faith of trust and belief. The helmet of salvation. Again, I could just keep going on this. It's the whole picture, isn't it? It is that all of who you are, your entirety, from your head to your toe, is consumed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are consumed with that armor, you are able to withstand the attacks of the evil one and the sword, that 6 to 18 inch sword that they would carry in their scabbard. He says, for you as believers, you think about that as the word, the Bible, the scripture. You think about, and here the word that is used is that individual word, particular statement, particular message to you that he has given you in the Bible. Hebrews 4, I mean really, captured it for us. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word is the sword. It is that defensive and offensive weapon. When Jesus was tempted, when Jesus was tempted by Satan himself, what did he do? He turned to the word. Always. Always. I say to you, you got to stand up. You got to suit up. And I know some of you are worried about this because you see the time, but let me say this. You got to speak up. Get all of yourself together. Stand up, put put your armor on, and do what? Pray. Do you see that? He said, You're getting all together now. You got yourself. Together, what are you to do? Verse 18, praying always. (laughs) Because prayer is where the battle is won. Prayer does what? Prayer does anything God can do. Why? Because when you pray to Him, you're praying on His dependence, on His work. You pray. Speak up. Speak up in prayer. Do it always. The Jews had certain hours when they were supposed to pray. Guess what? You and I don't have to subscribe just to those hours. We can pray the whole day. Some of you say, I can't pray the whole day. i got to do some work every now and then. Listen, it is a constant communion. It is a constant fellowship. It is a constant conversation you have with Jesus all during the day. You pray in all kinds of ways. Intercession, supplication, you pray. You speak up. You speak up in prayer, and then you speak up in the gospel. Do you see what Paul said? Paul said, and this is a way in which you can pray. Pray for me that I will be bold in the gospel presentation to those who are around me, even these guards who are here. You pray, and you speak the gospel. You want to change society? I'm all about elections. Listen, I voted yesterday. I hope you're going to vote. If you haven't already, you're going to vote next Saturday. All for those things. I believe we participate in it. But I'm not going to change society by who I elect. I'm going to change society by the gospel I preach. Because it is the good news of Jesus that eventually push back the enemy and bring life to people. My friends, Christ is our victory. Christ is our victory. It's not some slogan, it is reality. Stand up, suit up, and speak up as we push back the enemy and all of his evil hordes in the power and the might of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the power that you give us. Thank you for providing for us exactly what we need. And God, I pray this morning for those of us in this place who are struggling, and there are some of us who are struggling big time. There are some of us who are struggling in our family. There's some of us struggling in our work. There's some of us struggling maybe in the church life or struggling in the community life. And Father, I pray that today in this place, you would push back the power of Satan and his evil ones. And, Father, that you would show your strength and your power because we know that the victory is yours. We give it to you today. And, Lord, we pray that you would use us accordingly. Help us to see your good news change this area, our nation, and the nations themselves. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.